Well, good morning. Yes. Good morning. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Church. I'm glad to be with you. I'm glad we are together and we have reason to open this book and reason to sing in anticipation of hearing from this book and later singing in response to what we hear from this book. Um, I'm just happy to be with you and I hope it's helpful and I hope it's, I hope it's helpful for me too. Valentine's Day, huh? Anyone? Like a, it's like a mild groan over here. The day set aside for you to be expected to externally show love for your spouse or your sweetheart or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever. If you're getting a little, a little hot under the collar right now, that's not my fault. That's not my bad. But it, there is an expectation, right? February 14th, you're at work and your coworkers ask you, where are you going tonight? Are you going to a restaurant? Do you have a date planned? Am I the first one to remind you that it's Valentine's Day? Are you going to buy flowers? Are you going to buy a card? Are you going to get chocolate? What are you doing? And they probably wouldn't say it this way, but they are expecting you to show love to someone on that particular day. They're expecting it of you. It is an expectation, even if if people are whining about, I don't need an excuse to love my wife. Just stop it. Just go... We can talk later. It's an expectation. It's nearly an obligation. We've set aside a day once a year as a country where you are obligated to love someone. And this morning in Romans 13, we will see that for the church, every day is a day we are obligated to love someone. We are going to be pressing into the expectations of what it means for a Christian to live life. And a lot of that is regarding love. And we are going to see that Paul will remind us that for the church, love is our persistent obligation. We've been, we've been in Romans for 12 chapters now, a long time, and he's going to start summing some things up and he's going to pull them together. And in four different areas, he's going to say, love is what is preeminent here. Love is our persistent obligation. Let's read from Romans 13 again. Verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Owe no one anything except to love each other. I'm struck by the duty language, the duty quality of this passage. Paul just was talking about taxes in verse 7, right? If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, pay revenue. If you owe respect, pay respect. If you owe owe honor, pay honor. And now in verse 8, owe no one anything. There ought to be nothing in the backlog. There ought to be nothing in the IOU column. No bills piled up in the inbox. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Owing, obligation, 
This is the type of language I use when I talk about my utility bill. Right? Not, not when I show compassion to someone. Who, who has a mortgage? Who has college debt? Who has rent? All of you have one of these things. You are obligated to pay what you owe for each of these. There is an understanding, there is an agreement that you are indebted to pay before you are free from that obligation. Because of that, there's nothing incredible about the February house payment. There's nothing heroic about paying the rent. It's an obligation. You're expected to meet it. You had a debt and you pay it. That, that's why you don't have a friend call you, hey, I got some great news. Tell me. I paid my phone bill today. Were you planning not to pay your phone bill? You're supposed to pay your phone bill. You're supposed to pay for the water. You're supposed to pay for the house. You're supposed to pay back the money you borrowed. These are obligations. In fact, there's only something noteworthy about these obligations if you fail to pay the obligation. There's only something noteworthy if you lapse in your duty. Paul is speaking in this type of clear way. You have an obligation to love people. This is not an opportunity to be heroic, but a time to discharge an obligation. Loving someone is not above and beyond the call of duty. It is not the type of action that only the most qualified, the highest echelon of Christian can act out. This is not for the elite This is not for the holy. This is for you and for me. Because we are Christians. Because we have been saved by the God of love, our lives sit in a different framework and we owe others love. And this is a different frame than you would probably use if you were going to convince someone they ought to love someone, right? I would probably use a different tact. Maybe I would, I would shoot for the moon and I would appeal to the soul and to joy and if you love people, there will be joy there. Maybe I would put on my sales hat and I would go straight to ROI. Your return on investment is going to be huge. If you love people, they're probably going to like you. Business deals will be easier. Interactions will be easier. Things will go well. Maybe you would talk about just be socially unobtrusive. Just be nice to people. I I may think about using that type of language, but Paul does none of that and assumes none of it. He couches it in the language of obligation right after telling us to pay our taxes. Because we walk in a different way, right? We walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. We walk in a different way than the world around us. Our lives are founded on something different, something far more majestic and helpful. Why is Paul spending time to dial into this obligation? Because this is the way he sums up the quality of our actions as a church. The fuel behind the marks that we display as a church. The last two chapters, 12 and 13, have been a response to the gospel that he's listed in 1 through 11 And we are now positioned and persistently obligated to interact 
with four different areas of life in a strikingly different way than the rest of the world. And it's going to be the way of love. The first area that's, a, that's different is the law. He says in verse 9, I'll start in verse 8, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of the hard things for the church in Rome to understand was their relationship to the law. The Mosaic Law. If you remember, in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch or the Torah, Moses went up on the mountain and the rules that came down, right? Charlton Heston has the tablets in his arms, the Ten Commandments, and all the other rules that follow them. And if you just took the word law and looked it up in Romans, it shows up dozens of times because in this church, there are the Hebrews and there are the Gentiles and the Hebrews have been given the law. God has spoken to them and told them this is how you live and the Gentiles come in with the gospel and we never knew about the law. What do we do with this? And there's tension. How do I relate to the law? How do I interact with the way God told us to live? As Christians, we often get confused about the law. There are rules at the beginning of the Bible. They seem very important. But then we start talking about being saved and receiving salvation, being made right by grace through faith, being saved by grace through faith. And sometimes we say, forget the law. It's all legalism. The law doesn't save me, so let's just forget about it. But Paul has a different tact, a different avenue. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. To love is to fulfill the law, to accomplish the law, to sum up or synopsize or summarize the law, to do the law. Paul lists out several of the Ten Commandments, and you recognize them. Don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet or desire your neighbor's stuff. And rather than stack on more prohibitions, Paul gives us a positive. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this quotation is an echo and a reference to the words of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, came preaching the kingdom of God and explaining our relationship to the law and how things would look different because God had showed up. Jesus had many exchanges about the law and they show up in the, all the Gospels. And one of the most helpful this, for this morning is, is Matthew 22. Um, a theology teacher who really knew, knew the law, he was a Pharisee, he He'd studied this stuff. He had opinions about this stuff. He knew the right answers. He comes up to Jesus and says, which of the commandments is the greatest? What is the great commandment in the law? We're talking about the first five books. You have a pretty big Bible, right? All of those. We've got five books of the Bible. Hundreds of rules. The Ten Commandments are two, ten really important ones. Which is the most important? Pick the best, Jesus. Which is the great one? And Jesus says in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the, I'll give you the great commandment. I'm also going to sum all of this up and show you what all of the law and the prophets are founded on. Love God with everything, every bit of you. If I talk about my heart, soul, mind, everything is involved in loving God. 
And the second, you shall love your neighbor. And that love your neighbor piece encompasses every relationship you have. We have the vertical relationship aligned with God. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind. And the horizontal relationship, every, every other relationship you have. This is your spouse. This is your coworker. This is the family across the street. This is the immigrant. This is the one with the different beliefs. This is the one you don't like very much. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is listed and summed up in the positive. Do this thing rather than just a list of things you're not supposed to do. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Because if, if I know and do the positive, if I love my neighbor as myself, I don't have to be told, and don't steal his boat. Yeah, if I'm loving my neighbor, I'm, I'm not going to steal his boat. Don't, don't be hanging out with his wife like that. That's not how you love your neighbor. I know that because I'm doing the positive. I'm loving my neighbor. Jesus elsewhere says, I did not come to abolish the law, but fulfill it. To explain it, accomplish it to the fullest. To sum it up. And that is what Paul references here in the quotes, love your neighbor. Our relationship to the law is one defined by the way we love. The law was given to show the people of God, the Hebrews, how to live, how they ought to live, and to help them see how often life was not lived in a way that was properly aligned with God and properly aligned with neighbor. The law was given for that purpose so that they could see, oh, I'm, this is not the way I should live, and give them another option, a way that it can be lived properly. And the goal one of the goals of the law was to point to the rest of the world, this people worships a God who is good. This people lives their lives in a way that points to God. And Jesus made it super clear for us by summing it up for our horizontal relationships. Love your neighbor. I find this super helpful because it tells us what we do how to act, how to engage with the world, with thought, with action. What do I do with this life? So many people in this world are just making stuff up as they go along. What do I do with life? I don't know. This seems good. This seems agreeable. I'll try this out. If I experience some resistance, I'll try something else out. How do I get along with my fellow man? I, I don't know. I'll just start trying things. If you read ancient philosophers they're, they're trying to understand how the world is put together. And you see them wrestling with these questions. What is good? What is just? How should I interact with my fellow man? And they don't know where to start. Is this good? I don't know. It's good for that guy. I don't know if it's good for that guy. Is that how I'm supposed to interact with people? And they don't know where to start because they don't have revelation. They have nothing to found their ideas on. They're starting from zero we can ask, what are my obligations? How ought I to live life? And we don't have to make stuff up. To us has been revealed a way to live, a way to walk, a way that is done well in right relationship with God and right relationship with man. And because of Jesus, we know it is summed up and fulfilled. Love God and love neighbor. That's what we do. So this persistent obligation to love changes our relationship with the law. We do not have to have a poor idea of the law and think 
is just things to avoid and we don't have to reject it. We have a calling given by God we love. That's what we do. We love in many areas, but the closest of these areas would be the community, which is the next area that love, where love defines our relationships. Let's keep reading. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Paul sums up much of chapter 12 when he says, love each other. The word here is the word often translated one another. You've heard of the one another's of scripture, right? The same word uh, Jesus used in our passage in John, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. And many of the other one another passages in scripture, the passages that describe interaction that is in close relationship, greet one another, comfort one another, bear the burdens of one another. We are talking about the community, the community that defines our identity first, the community of Christ. Paul has previously, in in Romans 12, talked about loving with a brotherly affection. Now, he's just talking about obligation. This is your duty. You owe your brother love. You owe a debt that is permanent for your brother. You owe your sister love. It is an obligation that will never be fully satisfied. And with that in mind, my owing you love is not contingent on me liking you at any given moment. And your, your obligation of love to me is not contingent on you liking me at any given moment. It is not contingent on me being in the mood, the best mood to give you love. My obligation is not waived when I don't feel like it. Just one of those days, I just don't, I don't feel like it. A couple of nights ago, I was sitting with, my, he wasn't two at the time, but he's two today, my little boy, Senate. We were sitting at dinner, and he decided that he did not like the food we were eating. Even though I know he actually really does like the food we were eating, he just conveniently forgot for the day. And it was, it was a very difficult meal, to say the least. There was crying and yelling and coughing and spitting, and the stuff that Senate was doing was even worse. <laughs> I'm glad you got that. Um, and I was sitting there, and it was stressful, and I'm sitting at the table, and I, he's sitting to my right, and okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interact with him, I'm going I'm to try to help him, and I would turn to, nope, I can't talk. I'm not, I'm not in a good position to talk right now. And I would ponder and think some more and I, nope I can't talk or I can't respond in a loving way right now and I was afraid that by my words or my my mouth I would I would sin and I would I would hurt him and do something with my words that was not helpful and the time I'm sitting there thinking the whole time I'm hearing this go through my head oh no one anything except to love them I don't have to like it. Frankly, I don't have to like the actions of my kid at any given time either, but I owe him love. I owe him love. I'm stressed out. I owe him love. Eventually, with that running through my mind and, and th- that prayer helped me to, to love well, I got, to the, I got the wherewithal to turn and talk to him and I put my head or his head in my hands and I told him, my boy, I love you. I want to help you eat your food. I want to help you finish dinner and get you to bed because you're obviously very tired. But I love you. This is not, this is not heroics. 
This is simply showing up for an obligation. I owe him love, and remembering what I owed him helped me interact with him in a loving, compassionate way. It was still a rough go of it, but I was able to interact with him and to love him. And just to tie a bow there, towards the end of dinner, I, I, I turned to him and I said, are you trying to give Papa a sermon illustration? Yes. Let's do different sermon illustrations. I don't know. Another example for the church of loving one another in the community is life groups. Here at New Life Church, the primary place of loving each other is the small community that is the life group. Honestly, if in our context, the church automatically and naturally discharged the obligation of love for the community, we wouldn't need life groups. But this idea is foreign to American Christians. Americans in general will isolate themselves and they will be more of individualistic and I'm over here and you guys are doing your thing and good luck. We're, we're prone to isolate rather than engage community. In Acts, the church, the, the, the book that describes the birth of the church, the church kicks off and the community is so tight-knit that they know the needs of each other. They eat meals in each other's homes. They sell their own stuff to meet the needs they hear about. They know each other. They are vulnerable with each other. They take care of each other's families. You hear them concerned about the widows and the orphans. What do we do? In America, we're not automatically great at this. We need a form in which to put ourselves to help us practice the rhythms of that type of community, to help us practice discharging the obligation of love. Life group is a place to practice that obligation. That's why we eat together. We get comfortable with each other and share life in the stories of our lives. We talk about what is really hard right now and we talk about what is really great right now. We sit in couches together and I pray for your family and you pray for my medical ailment. We hear when the finances are not coming together. We hear when you're scared or depressed or just really doggone tired. We cry together, not saying any words because it's too painful. We throw a party when it's time to celebrate. We have life groups as little pockets of community where we can be vulnerable and start practice, practicing being together. Practice discharging our obligation to love each other. Most of that is just showing up, right? Keep showing up. Plug in. Love your brother. Love your sister. You have an obligation to the people sitting next to you right now. This is the close community. This is how we do close community. Maybe not always the easiest venue in which to love, but the one we would know most naturally, the one we would most recognize. What about one that is naturally difficult? A persistent obligation of love defines our interaction with government. Let's go back to seven. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. And in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. If you were Paul, wouldn't you just avoid all of it? Start writing and cross that out. We'll just, we'll just leave it. I probably would because it's contentious and it's difficult. But I'm glad that God did not let Paul 
skip this. Rome, the church in Rome needed this so that they can learn how to interact in a world in a way that makes Jesus look good. We need this so that we can learn how to interact in this world so that Jesus looks good. Our persistent obligation of love redefines the way we interact with government. This is Paul summing everything up. We're going to talk about love because in 12 chapters, this is the best way to sum it up. I owe love to every person and love does, does no wrong. Who had a tough time thinking through last week's sermon on government? I know most of you did. Who had a tough time talking in life group about government? You're all a bunch of liars. <laughs> I did. I think particularly because the usual tools that we have and have been modeled for interacting with our government are not ones informed by these verses. We've been modeled tools of mockery and derision, of yelling and name-calling, of wielded power instead of obligated love. In large degree, we have been modeled only poor ways of interacting with our government. Our persistent obligation informs our relationship not just with the one sitting next to you, the one that knows the same gospel as you, but also the relationship with the one who has authority, whether or not they know the gospel. Love founds our interaction with government. This is, this is absurd. In the same breath, Paul says, if you owe taxes, pay taxes, and you will always owe love. The obligation will never be satisfied. And again, we're not talking about heroics here. Though persistent love may lead to future heroics, you owe love right now, so start where you are. What happens when I come up against authority and it chafes me and hits me in the gut? What if I burn with a desire for justice and I see the wrong thing coming about? Maybe like you, or maybe like me, you heard about the recent New York legislation regarding abortion. Or you heard the comments of Virginia's governor on abortion and the possibility of letting a baby that had already been born die. What do I do? What do I do with that? Remember what you owe. Love. First, your, powerful, your most powerful tool is not your Facebook account. Or your Twitter account. I think a lot of times we run to that tool and that tool backfires and is not designed to do good work. It is more often used for hate and conflagration and burning things down than it is for love. You'll use better tools. If I have to love someone, if I'm obligated, if I owe them love, I can pray for them. When was the last time you prayed for people in authority? You can pray for them. We, we did that in our life group, and I'll be honest, that was really difficult. I named names that, in some contexts, I would, I would consider, ah, oh, they're an enemy. We prayed for those names. That changes things. I can pray for you even if I don't share your fiscal policy, or your foreign policy, or your domestic policy, or your social policy. 
And prayer is not a cop-out. I can talk to the God of the universe and ask Him to give wisdom and grace and counsel to leaders of cities and states and nations. I don't have to agree with you to pray for you. I don't have to agree with you to love you. I don't have to like what you're doing to pray that God would soften your heart and show you who He is and show you who Jesus is. We don't need to agree on your founding political principles to ask that God give you the tools needed to do the very, very difficult job of running a state or writing laws. Because appealing to the all-powerful God of the universe for grace and mercy and kindness is not a cop-out. And it is a powerful act of love. Maybe you're thinking, but no one will hear me and hear that I am standing up for the right causes if I don't scream on Facebook. Maybe the desire, your desired outcomes are not as noble as you think they are. Maybe your goal is to be recognized as thinking the right thing rather than striving to love neighbor here now. Pray for the authorities. One of the things that came up in our life group, I don't want to just sit on my hands. What do I, I want to do something. Does that mean I just sit on my hands and I just mums the word and I just pray in a corner? No. If you see a need in this world, if you see a place where a neighbor needs to be loved, you give of everything you have been given to steward as a means of loving that neighbor. If I'm concerned about the life of babies, and I am, I pray for wisdom for those who have their hands on the major lovers of society, and I also give my time and my money and my talents and my influence for the sake of of my neighbors, for the sake of my baby neighbors, so that I can love my neighbors who are babies. If the plight of the immigrants breaks your heart, and it should, that's the same thing that breaks God's heart. You should care about the things God cares about. Don't take to Facebook. Use your time and energy and chunks of your paycheck to be the means of discharging your obligation of love. Express your broken heart, not on a message board, but in the lunchroom. Not as a means to win points, but to win the hearts of friends for the plight of the sojourners. If your eyes are open to the addicted and the downtrodden and the disadvantaged and the hurting, and your heart is broken and it should be, you should care about the things God cares about. Your obligation of love is not met by posting a YouTube video or retweeting a news link, sharing how poorly a city or a state or a nation has dealt with this problem. You have been given resources to steward by the God of the universe. And you look at what you have and you give well as a means of love for the neighbor. Someone in our life group volunteers at the Father's heart and hands food to homeless people. You work hard, you give your resources, you give your time, you introduce yourself, you make friends, you show hospitality and desire to make strangers into friends. Maybe you're saying, I want to do more. I see how broken this world is. I see how it's broken and shattered and bent and twisted. I want to do more. I resonate with that. 
I think the more you start giving and using what you have, the more your heart burns within you because you see the tension between heaven and earth and you say, heaven's not here yet. It's broken. What do I do? I want wrongs to be made right. I want justice to crush injustice. I want righteousness to crush evil. There's a, there's a proverb I'm particularly fond of. In Proverbs 22, 29, it says, Do you see the man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. Right now you have been given tasks and skills and resources and influences and friendships and relationships of which you are the steward. You can use them wisely and effectively and skillfully. The things you steward are the thing, different than the things I steward. And whatever you have, use it to pay what you owe. Do that work well with an eye to your obligation to love. Perhaps one day, as you faithfully meet your obligation, you will have opportunity to discharge your obligation before leaders of great import. Perhaps you will stand before kings because... You, you skillfully executed what you'd been given. And having practice with little things, you can faithfully love with big things. There's a well-known story in the book of Genesis about a man named Joseph who was known because he became the de facto ruler of Egypt, the, the strongest nation in the world at the time. Joseph is not known because he wielded political power and moved and maneuvered and, and compromised and did all these things, Joseph is known because he practiced worshiping God and loving neighbor in the little things. As a servant, as, as house help, faithfully executed, faithfully loved. In prison, faithfully executed, faithfully loved. And eventually he stood before the king, not of a nation of the world, and just kept faithfully executing what he'd been doing the whole time. That's why we know his story. He'd been practicing it for years. Pay your obligation right now. Love with what you have right now. Be faithful to that debt right now. Love does not terminate on impersonal institutions or kings. We are obliged to have love inform every relationship we have the neighbor, the other, the enemy. Back to verse 8. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In verse 8, it talks about loving one another, the person in the pew. That's the beginning of the verse. And then it says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This word is a different word than the first. It is in the Greek the word for the other, the one different the one who is not a brother from a one another, but someone who is on the outside of the community. This is the neighbor language that Jesus uses to blow up the category of those to whom we have obligation. Every, you know the story of the Good Samaritan. One that knows the law walks by, one that's a priest walks by. The different one is the one that loves the neighbor. He says, who is a neighbor? The different one. especially the other and the outsider and the enemy. The persistent obligation of love is also incurred for each of these. You have debts to each of these. 
You're responsible to love those people. You are obligated to love those people. You probably consider yourself responsible people, right? Financially responsible people. I'm sure that many of you have structured your lives financially so that you can meet your financial obligations, right? On time, right? Even more so, we owe our neighbors love. We owe the others love. We owe our enemies love. Like I would structure my financial life to make sure I pay my rent on time so I don't ding my credit. I would structure my life so I'm not going to go out to eat before I know I can pay the phone bill. I'm not going to go on a vacation before I know I can keep water running and the power in my house. I'm going to structure my financial life to ensure that I can meet my obligations. We ought also structure our lives so that we can meet our obligations to love our neighbors. If a ding on a credit score is enough of an incentive to keep us on our bills, I would hope the words of the gospel are weightier regarding our persistent obligation. Plan life around your obligation to love. To love your neighbors, the others, the enemy. And just like with community, most of that is showing up. Be present. Be available. Make margin in your life to give what you owe. There's a reason we started last week talking about neighborhood parties. Thinking about hospitality. A means of making strangers friends. We hope to help you plan ahead to have margin this summer to meet your obligation. So that you can go meet a neighbor, that you can go love a neighbor, and you can meet that obligation well. In the next couple of months, I'm sure, I'm sure like me, you will receive pamphlets in the mail from your city, Westland, Oregon City, Gladstone, Clackamas, wherever. You're going to get flyers that list out, here are all the community events that we're going to do as a city. We're going to have movies in the park, we're going to put up a screen, we're going to watch cartoons, we're going to have reading programs, we're going to plant trees, we're going to have... Uh, fairs, we're going to have street, we're going to do all this kind of stuff. That's free planning for you. You get to add hangouts and parties and you don't have to plan it. That's great. Show up. Be present. Introduce yourself. Shake a hand. Meet a neighbor. You owe love to your neighbors. We meet our obligation of love to the other, to the stranger, by showing up. Hospitality means, is the means by which we make strangers friends. And you have to go meet the strangers before you can make them friends. How can you rearrange life to make space for this obligation? How can you make room for hospitality? Neighbors, others, the scariest category, enemies. Paul has already talked about our enemies in chapter 12. He said, bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony with those. As far as it depends on you, live in peace with those that would persecute you. And just like I need to make a plan for this summer to fulfill my obligation to love my neighbors, I ought to make steps to plan to love my enemies. Let me share a story of a man who planned to love his enemies in advance. On December 9th, 2018, just a couple months ago, Pastor Wang Yi, senior pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China, 
and 100 members of his church were arrested for inciting subversion of state powers. That arrest started a 48-hour timer. One that, once that 48-hour timer had been met, they were going to send this letter that he had written in advance. It was to be sent out by the church explaining that this arrest was not an act of political activism or civil disobedience, not a way of making a point or speaking truth to power, but a necessary consequence is he was being persecuted for serving Jesus and loving people for Jesus' sake. In the letter, he makes an appeal to his enemies. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief towards those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. No one can raise me from the dead. And so, respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands, for why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell? for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I. Pastor Yee's letter was a means of preparing to discharge his obligation of love to even his enemies. He planned ahead because a persistent obligation of love defines our relationship with even our enemies. When we love our neighbors and our enemies, we point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, Paul says, in verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus the Son is God who first proclaimed the gospel. That, we would, that he would do for us what we could not do. Live a life that fully walked in step with how life ought to be lived. Not doing the wrong and fully doing the right, the righteous. Jesus is God who died to love the others. He took the condemnation of our sin. We were the others. We were the strangers whom he made friends through his love. He gave everything he had as a means of loving us into relationship with him. Jesus is the God who rose again to send us a spirit that enables us to live the way of Jesus. That the righteous requirement of the law, love your neighbor, may be fulfilled in us. Fully filled up and lived out in us. That we may live in a way that speaks of obligation to love. We have been loved greatly and we have been empowered and persistently obligated to greatly love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us and giving us a partnership in your ministry to love others. Give us the wisdom, energy, and compassion to carry out this obligation, to pay what we owe. 
Help us see this task for what it is, something we owe our neighbors. Help us see that this love of neighbors is not what invites your love of us, but it is your love that empowers us to love our neighbors. Give us what we need to love well, that your name may look magnificent to those we love. Amen.